This episode of Epicenter Bitcoin is brought to you by Fairlay. Fairlay is a Bitcoin prediction market where you can place predictions on the likelihood of sporting events, the Bitcoin price, or current affairs. You earn money if your predictions are correct. Head over to fairlay.com slash epicenter, that's F-A-I-R-L-A-Y dot com slash epicenter, to place your first bet today. And by the Gem Social Messaging app. We believe GEMS has a real potential to bring new users into the Bitcoin ecosystem and take adoption to the next level. It's social messaging on cryptocurrency steroids. The GEMS presale is running now, and you too can benefit from becoming an early supporter. Head over to getgems.org to learn more. And by Shapeshift.io. With no account or sign-up required, it's the easiest way to buy and sell Litecoin, Dogecoin, Darkcoin, and other leading cryptocurrencies. Go to shapeshift.io to instantly convert all coins and to discover the future of cryptocurrency exchanges. Hello, welcome to Epicenter Bitcoin, the show which talks about the technologies, projects, and startups driving decentralization and the global cryptocurrency revolution, and sometimes even institutional financial markets. My name is Sebastien Couture. <laughs> Uh, and I'm Brian Fabian Crane. So we're here today with uh, Daniel Galancy. He's the CEO of SolidX Partners. So SolidX Partners is um, a sort of a Wall Street firm that is trying to make Bitcoin accessible to institutional investors. So I actually thought when we started this podcast, and I guess I thought also when I, I got into Bitcoin that there was going to be a lot of involvement from the sort of financial institution side that it was obviously going to happen and i feel like it hasn't happened so far at least in my impression so i'm excited that we have a chance to sort of speak with someone who really knows what's going on in that area and dive into that so uh, thanks for coming on daniel that's a flattering description and i appreciate it uh but the financial markets are very large and i'm not sure anyone would be able to truly say they understand exactly what's going on but thank you anyway yes yeah <laughs> right there's a lot going on all at once right? yeah, yeah. Uh, so can you just give a brief introduction to uh, what solid x uh, partners is and what you guys are trying to accomplish of course so solid x partners is what's known as a swap market participant and ultimately will be in, in the future a swap dealer these are terms that are very specific to the united states um although swaps are used internationally. Now, the word swap can mean many things. Um, and if you look back at the financial crisis, people demonized credit default swaps insofar as that, you know, they were um, part of, you know, part of the meltdown, so to speak, that we all endured. Um, but there are many different types of swaps. Some of them involve risk, uh, you know, between two parties, uh, some of them are really meant for hedging, right? There's always there's always risk, right? But they all have different uses. Um, in this particular context, we're offering one kind of swap called a total return swap, uh, and that's essentially an access vehicle. What it does is it enables a counterparty, the who you would think of as an investor, to get the economic exposure to an amount of Bitcoin, you know, pick the amount, without actually having to do any of the work involved in sourcing it, storing it, or any of the other stuff that they would have to do to, to make it, I'm using air quotes here, you can't see me, compatible with the rest of their portfolio and the rest of the way they trade assets. So lo lo that's a long story. Long story short, we, we're a compatibility layer between Bitcoin and Wall Street. Think of us as middleware, financial middleware. And for those who are financially illiterate, such as myself, uh, how, how does uh, a total return swap uh, differentiate itself from a, an ETF, for example? How, how are they different? So an ETF is publicly traded. Um, and anyone can access an ETF as long as they have a brokerage account. And then, you know... Publicly traded equities and ETFs can be accessed by individual retail investors, and they can also be accessed by institutional investors. And in that sense, if you think of the gold ETF, GLD, indeed, you have both institutions and also individuals participating. Um, so ETFs are great. And I think ultimately there, you know, there's a good chance there will be a terrific Bitcoin ETF 
Uh, it's not here yet, uh, and it, you know it's difficult to know when it will arrive. And in in the meantime, uh, there's a barrier for institutions to get involved. Okay, so th- they are very similar, just that one the, the the return swap is built for institutional investors. Yes, and the swap market in the United States is specifically geared for institutional investors only. So you have to be what's known as an eligible contract participant, an, e- an ECP, under uh, CFTC guidelines. CFTC in the United States is the uh, Commodities Futures um, Commodities Futures Trading Commission. Sorry, and they, the CFTC regulates the Commodities Futures Trading Commission regulates most swaps and derivatives in the United States. There are other kinds of swaps and derivatives that are regulated by the SEC, um, but the CFTC in this context is the regulator. And so how did you come up with this idea? I can't. How do I come up with this idea? That's a good question. Uh, well, let me rewind for one second and explain two more things that are important. Swaps, these particular types of swaps, are not exchange-traded. So you, you can't buy or sell them on an exchange in the way you can buy or sell stocks. And there are other kinds of swaps that are exchange-traded, uh, very specific kinds that trade on what's known as a CEF. Um these swaps, these particular total return swaps, are what are known as over-the-counter. So they're not going to trade on, a, you know, on an exchange. They're not going to be visible to most investors. Um, you, you have to know where to go to get them, or they have to be able to, or you know, we have to be able to find you. You know, and the you in that sentence is a hedge fund or an institutional investor. Um, so that that links to what you just asked, which is, you know, how did I come up with this idea? So. My background before doing this is uh, largely you know, from the financial services world. I spent many years working at hedge funds uh, as an analyst covering uh, technology stocks and, and other types of equities. Um, and when we would get involved with equities overseas, uh, stocks that would trade in Asia, for example, we would often use a total return swap. And the reason for that is there are controls, both regulatory and logistical, that make it more difficult for U.S. investors to participate in certain overseas markets. And as a consequence of that, the structure that's grown up around that is total return swaps. So if you think about it, uh, the example is, you know, if I want to uh, purchase a stock in XYZ country in Asia, right? But I can't, for whatever reason, purchase it directly. You know, I call up, you know, Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs or Merrill Lynch, you know, whomever it may be, and say, okay, I want to be long $10 million of, you know, the, this particular stock that trades, you know, in XYZ country in Asia. And what they do is they say, okay, you know, you're, we're going to do your trade for you. And they do the trade. And then what I see as an end investor as a hedge fund is the swap, right? I get the full economic return in U.S. dollars on whatever movements happen in the underlying equity overseas, but I don't actually own the equity. So is there any uh, restrictions or regulation as to what type of underlying assets uh, you, are used for, you are able to use for a swap? What type of underlying assets you're able to use for a swap? So I can't speak to you know, what the regulation looks like in every country. Um, certainly in the United States, uh, there are regulations as to, as to what, uh, mm, it's an interesting question, <laughs> as to what underlying assets can be, can be used as a reference asset for a total return swap. Um, I don't know the specifics of that rule set. One of the interesting things, no, is that with the ETF, we've been sort of waiting for that to happen. And I guess uh, one problem is that they were like, oh, well, what is this thing? You know, oh, you have to get approval there. And it's a complicated process. And if a swap is sort of a way to like, you know, you can take equities in China or you can take Bitcoin and, and they don't really care. Right. So then that provides, I guess, a nice way not having to deal with that. So I'm curious, you know, is there... I wouldn't say they don't really care. They certainly do care. The CFTC cares. I mean, they're in a very important regulator here. Um, I so I don't remember the exact criteria. One one important criteria is that the asset is 
the pricing for the asset is readily available, right? So if there's no reference price for the asset, that makes it very difficult to create a swap. Um, so here there are, you know, there's certainly a reference price. Uh, there may be other regulations as to what, you know, what can and cannot be, you know, uh, used as a reference asset for total return swap. I'm not sure what those are off the top of my head. Um, but certain, certainly the ability to come up with a price, uh, is very important. And you could conceive of, you know, for example, other reference assets for which it would be far less clear what the price is, right? I mean, you know, what's the price of my, computer monitor, right? I could sell it on eBay, but it's not a very liquid market and, you know, for this particular brand of monitor, right? You know, like, who knows? So with Bitcoin, although we do have multiple exchanges trading it in different geographies and sometimes there are arbitrage opportunities or at a minimum price differentials, if not actual arbitrage opportunities, you can converge to a, a price. I mean, you, you can say that it's pretty close to whatever it is, right? But that's actually an interesting question because I was going to ask you like that, right? Because you now you, someone, let's say, they want to have exposure to uh, ten thousand bitcoins, mm-hmm. and now six months from now they get you know the return on those bitcoins. But so the question is like, uh, what do you use as the the basis or the price index to determine that? Are, are you using? I mean, I presume you're not using like a CoinDesk average or Bitcoin average, but you need. You would need something more robust and reliable and durable, no? There are multiple ways to do it. Um, one could use a, a robust index, and there have you know there is one index in the United States that the CFTC has. Uh, I don't want to. I'm not sure. I want to use, use the word approved. Maybe they have approved it. They certainly allow parties to use it as a reference price index. Um, the way SolidX's swaps are set up is such that we have a, a specific entry and exit price that are essentially agreed upon with the counterparty. So it, because these swaps are not meant for hedging, they're meant for exposure, the parameters are somewhat different. If you have a swap that's meant for hedging, you would almost certainly require a reference price from a third party. Here, the you could have reference prices that are agreed upon by counterparty A and counterparty B, if that makes any sense. Okay, so because uh, I was I was going to ask, right? So like, let's say uh, I want to sell that now, uh, or after six months, the the, the swap ends, and I want to get the return. Right. So then you have to presumably go out and and you have to sell those bitcoins. So right. I was wondering if you, because if the price was based on an index, then it could happen that you have a risk there, no? Especially if it's a large, uh, if it's a large swap and someone has ten thousand bitcoins, right? And you have to go out and sell ten thousand bitcoins, you may not get the same price that you would have on an index. That's right. Um, is does that risk exist, or so that risk can exist in the world of swaps? We have found ways to mitigate that risk by the the sub-agreements within our, our swap documentation. So we're not going to have that risk ourselves, largely because we come to an agreement beforehand with the counterparty as to the, the range of prices that that will be the termination price. So we've dealt with that problem up front, right? Now, of course, that's not to say, you know, when, you know, if we did a swap today, right, and then six months from now, I'm not, I'm not expecting... You know, the counterparty to say today, here's the you know, reference price in six months. That would be absurd. But there are, the right way to put it is that there are parameters around the reference price in the future, right? So if, you know, Bitcoin goes from, you know, here to 200, right? Um, and obviously I'm trying to sell some and the counterparty has, and maybe they're short. So maybe they, maybe it's a gain for them, right? You know, the counterparty certainly doesn't want me to, you know, purchase the underlying Bitcoin to cover the short at 210, right? But there is, uh, there are parameters around the price at which we execute that trade and uh, end up covering their, covering our position and and thus enabling their position to be covered as well. Okay, okay. So basically you just then uh, liquidate that position and and you have, and and then that they get uh, what they get, at least uh, roughly. Uh, and you guys uh, can sort of pass that risk on because... That's right. That's right. 
can you uh, talk a little bit about uh, how far along are you? Have you already uh, done swaps? We have. At this stage, or are you still working on, on building the infrastructure? We are up and running and have been for a little while now. Um, but at the same time, we're still building more, right? So we, you know, we have an organization that is fully operational right now today. Uh, we, you know, if you, if you were a hedge fund and you were calling me today and say, Hey, I want to do a swap, we would make that happen. Um, but of course, that doesn't mean that our work is done. There's a lot more that we want to do to streamline the process, you know, add partners, add distributor, add, add what we would call a distribution channel. There's a lot to be, to be done before I'd say we are, you know, at the finish line. I don't think any business ever really gets to the finish line because once you've hit a certain point, you want to grow some more and you add more things. So, you know, we're not, we're not resting on our laurels by any means. We're actually all working tremendously hard to, to move this forward. So um, before, I, I would say, like, let's in a minute uh, dive a little bit more into sort of, you know, what the state is uh, of the perception of Bitcoin on Wall Street and, and what interests you're seeing there. But before we do that, we want to um, do our ad because we, we have a, a new sponsor and um, they are, uh, if you listen to our last episode, you will know them because they're uh, gems. We had uh, CEO Daniel Paulette on as a guest and we both, we both loved the potential of this. So James is a social messaging app. So it's a lot like WhatsApp, but sort of like WhatsApp on cryptocurrency steroids. So um, there are a few things that we love about this. So first of all, it's encrypted. So Sebastian is very worried about this because of his selfie-taking habit. Yeah, I'm sick of the NSA see, seeing all my selfies. <laughs> <laughs> so... Gems also takes sort of full advantage of uh, the power of cryptocurrencies. First of all, it's uh, it's a messaging app, and it's also a Bitcoin wallet. And what they also have is their own native token called Gems. So if, when you set up the app, you get started off with some Gems. So it's sort of a way to bring in new users. Um, and I think we think it will be a great way to get started. Uh, and here is sort of where I think this is most interesting. If we think of something like WhatsApp, right, they got to 400 million users and the people spreading the network, the people who are most vital in making that happen, they didn't get compensated. Whoa, 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 whoa. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? I, I, got, I got some money when WhatsApp sold. Didn't you get any money? Didn't you get like 150 bucks from, uh, from Facebook? <laughs> no, nobody gave me anything, no. So uh, what Gems does it does give uh, those. It does reward behavior by giving out gems. So essentially, if you make it happen, you profit. So I think we've, I think this is extremely powerful in getting to this reach. So uh, we do think this is super a valuable tool and uh, in taking cryptocurrency to the next level. So if you want to get involved, they're doing a, a pre-sale at Coinify. So which starts actually on the day this air, so September first, so um, and runs through January fifth. So you head over to getgems.org and check the project out to participate in the pre-sale. Uh, they're also offering uh, early bird pressing until December 3rd. So if you want in, then you know do it now. So let's help them build a social network that really uh, empowers users and takes cryptocurrency to the next level. And sorry, just to correct you, Brian, uh, the pre-sale is December 1st to January 5th, not September 1st. Okay. So... Can you talk a little bit about uh, the interest you are seeing in this? Is it hedge funds that are investing and uh, in entering these swaps with you? Or is it, uh, I remember somewhere, I think you mentioned also family offices. Uh, is there are you seeing interest or are there uh, other parties that uh, I didn't even think of that is interested in entering positions at this stage? So the largest pool of interested parties are hedge funds. That's for, that's for sure. Um you know, there, there is certainly some interest from family offices as well. That's, you know, no doubt about that. Um, and there are other pools of institutional capital that are somewhat more esoteric that are interested as well. But I would say that right now, the, the largest pool is indeed hedge funds. And I think that that's, you know, that makes a lot of sense because they, they tend to be, you know, hedge funds, depending on the, on the variety, tend to be the, the, the most uh, pioneering, I would say, of investors. Um, you know, far more so than, say, you know, mutual funds. Yeah, I mean, that's also one thing uh, I sort of thought of, like, you know, when I got in it. Because the, the way I've often thought of Bitcoin, 
um, is, and I've also talked with people like that about it. So let's say you think there's a small chance of this happening and this working, right? Like, let's say you put the chance at, at 5%, or maybe you say uh, you don't think this, you think this 1%. But if it does happen, right? So you say, like, what, what if Bitcoin does become really successful? What if it does become a worldwide use currency and payment network and people treat it as an asset? What would that mean? Well, I think it's, it's totally feasible, you know, people throw around numbers, $10,000 per Bitcoin and maybe 50,000, maybe even more, right? Um, so if you think of it like that, it just sort of seems like it's such, um, first of all, an extremely high potential uh, um, sort of game to play if you are after a high return, but also an insurance to take. Because if it does happen, it's not like the world all of a sudden has that much more wealth. I mean, there may be an extent to that, that uh, Bitcoin actually can increase maybe GDP, but to a large extent, there would be a redistribution, right? So you could think of it as a, as a hedge and as an insurance policy. Uh, do you see that sort of perspective also held on Wall Street? So it's interesting that you frame it that way. I wouldn't necessarily call it a redistribution of wealth, that implies that there's a zero-sum game here. If you think about it, think about the stock market, for example. When, when the market goes up, right? it's not as though you're redistributing value amongst a, a set pool of players and there's a set amount of value to be distributed. right? What you're actually doing, or what, what is actually occurring, is actually the creation of new value, or at least the perception of the creation of new value. We can the getting into the nuances gets a little more confusing, but um, as you know, GDP grows overall, and as asset prices increase on a you know real basis, you know, excluding inflation, you are indeed creating value. So, to the extent that Bitcoin increases in 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 price in the monetary base, I, I prefer monetary base to market cap because it's not really a, it's not a stock, right? It's a, it's a money like asset class. To the extent that the monetary base increases in size, there is, uh, in fact, a, a creation of value, right? It, it's not it's not a creation of value out of thin air, so to speak, in the way that one might might think of, right? It's a creation of value as a consequence of market participants making the decision that X Y Z asset has more value than it had yesterday. Does that does that make sense? I can I can frame it differently if that uh, that's sort of a yeah. No, it makes sense. I mean, the way I think of it, I, I think of, I mean, I think of both potentially happening, right? Of you do have a creation of new wealth, right? You do have a utility, you have maybe all of a sudden people are able to move their money more easily internationally. You could say like, this is made, uh, this is not a serious own thing, right? This is a positive thing. This is brought value. But at the same time, especially when you start to think of people treating Bitcoin as an asset, sort of as a, a bit like gold, then I would think when you start having, let's say you have a, a, a trillion dollars uh, or, or, or a value of all the Bitcoins, it seems like there's just, you can think of it like inflation, no? I mean, that, that would be mean more money is there, for example, in New York to buy expensive apartments to, so if you think of it that way, I, I do think that you can think of it at least potentially as a type of redistribution. So look back to the Stone Age, right? We were all, you know, running around and you know, chasing animals with sticks and, you know, picking berries from bushes. And over time, you know, civilization became more and more sophisticated and advanced. We learned how to do more stuff. We had the actual creation of value. Right. And when I, when I say the creation of value, I mean, you know, the ability for all of us to live better lives as a, as a consequence of innovation. Right. In in economics, that's called the total factor of productivity. Right. And it, it, it represents the degree to which GDP grows as a consequence of innovation. Um, and I think in a lot of circumstances today, there's uh there can be confusion between the creation of value and the redistribution of value. Um, and I, I, I can understand why. It's a very, 
it's a very confusing situation. And there are sometimes where there are occasions where it's nebulous. Um, in the context of asset prices going up on a real basis, excluding inflation, and what I mean by that is um, the value of some particular asset traded for, exchanged for other assets tomorrow gets you more of those other assets than it did today, that's real growth in the value of the asset, right? To the extent that it's, it gets you the same amount of assets as in the past, right? That's inflation, right? So... Yeah, let, let me give you an example maybe that sort of explains what I mean. Is well, Let's imagine... Uh, we had uh, in we were in the Middle Ages, and the only thing used as money was gold. Uh, and and then someone comes up with a better thing, right? It's like gold plus, it, 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 and it works a little bit better as money. And people start using that for let's say ninety ninety percent of things. It seems like, I mean, pretty obviously, right? The people holding gold, they they will not be happy about this, right? Because now there's this other thing which maybe has some more use and and that will gain in value and the gold relatively will lose in value. And and maybe part of it you could say is like, well, this is more useful, so the world's better off, value has been created. But to a large extent, it just seems to be a transfer, a redistribution, right? And uh, you have the thing that, well, was was more useful now and it was, it was the only thing money and it's not the only thing money anymore so uh, i personally think both are going on but uh, it does no I, I understand what you're talking about so in the context of a specific substitute for money like asset class a for money like asset class b i guess you should say b for a whenever subsequent for the prior right and it's a true substitute. You know, one 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 overtakes the other, and the value attributed to the the former declines on a real basis, right? So, what I mean by that is, you know, we were using. Let's talk about let's talk about silver, just as you know, example, right? People, pe- let's say people are using silver, you know, in, in one particular year, and you know, a, a hunk of silver buys you four horses, right? And then the next year, people start using gold, right? And the hunk of gold buys you five horses, but the the equivalent hunk of silver as you would have used last year only buys you two horses, right? Then you've had it. Then you've had a change in the real value of silver, right? But if you have a situation where the hunk of gold buys you five horses, and the hunk of silver still buys you four horses, right? Then you've had the creation of new value. You're, I think you're referring to the the the, the destruction of value of uh, of a prior asset and the replacement of that value by a new asset, and that certainly does happen as well. What I think in the in the con- so that so that makes so I think that's the the difference between what we're what we're referring to here. Yeah. Well, the question is, you know, with with the creation of cryptocurrencies and the proliferation of cryptocurrencies and you know. Uh, and, and apps being created that are creating new value, like gems, for instance, or other altcoins being created that are creating value. What can we anticipate will happen? Will are is the silver going to buy you three horses or two horses after? Uh, so, meaning, meaning, will uh, fiat currencies lose their value? I guess is the question that we're trying to get to. I'm not an economist. I just play one on TV. Um, <laughs> so, I, I. I one can speculate in, in one can speculate about that uh, and come to various different conclusions uh, and I think it will depend largely on the context you know how how will this turn out there you know there are uh, important members of the Bitcoin community who have described Bitcoin as an experiment I would prefer not to describe it that way but let's let's use that terminology for a moment how will this experiment turn out right will it turn out with a scenario like what you're referring to, or a scenario more akin to what I've described, or will turn will it turn out some other way that we haven't thought of? It's very very hard to predict. I'm I'm hesitant to hazard a prediction. Um, the the one thing that I will say, since you asked the right, since you asked the question, uh, one thing that I will say is, when you have a technological advancement, you create something that that didn't exist before, insofar as new functionality, right? That is innovation, right? That is growth in total factor of productivity, right? And 
as a consequence, there needn't be destruction, right? There, now, now, that doesn't mean that things won't get run over, right? I mean, when, you know, when cars became the norm, right? People stopped buying horses for transport, right? We've seen that happen all the time. And venture capitalists, of course, you know, take advantage of, or I don't mean that in a bad way. They, they, you know, they take advantage of innovation insofar as the cost of doing a set of functions could be, you know, a million dollars. And then there's a new way of doing it. And it only costs a thousand dollars, right? And then the old way of doing it, there are all these prior beneficiaries and they all get wiped out. And the new way of doing it, there, there's only a smaller group of beneficiaries and they make less money, right? But, right, they create more value or they create a lot of value for other people. Right. So, um, sorry if that, if that was confusing, but does that, does that make sense? And I think the, with cryptocurrency, right, with Bitcoin and other cryptocurrency, I think it's, it's really that scenario. Creative destruction, it's, it's, it's often called. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I agree with you. I think that's, for the most part, what's going on today. And I think that's what's going to go on in the future. And I think Bitcoin is creating a, a value and it, it will create tremendous value potentially. Uh, but I do think uh, if you think of Bitcoin becoming a, like a store of value, uh, so so I guess, you know, you can sort of separate it, right? So maybe to some extent, it's a utility, right? It's payments, sending money. That's all adding value. It's new value. Um, but when you talk of it as a store of value, then um, I, I think at least that potential is there of a redistribution. But but I guess we will see. You no, know, I think it will be one of the the fascinating things um, of how this will play out. And it's absolutely a very, I think it'll, very long scenario we're talking about. Absolutely, I think it will be one of the most fascinating things about how this will play out, and. Uh, it will be interesting to see, and I am interested to see it myself. Uh, I, you know, it's hard. Like I said, it's hard for me to make a specific prediction, um, but I can understand the logic behind both sides. Yeah, I've often thought of Bitcoin sort of as an as an ETF on the cryptocurrency ecosystem. So right, so you think Bitcoin becoming successful, it sort of functions in a way that you own some bitcoins and you profit from all the value that's added by BitPay, Coinbase, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, do you agree with that analogy? I think that's a, a a very good analogy and a fair assessment. I feel like uh, I feel like I read uh, either a blog post or something from Tony at BitPay about exactly that, um, and I think that that is a very reasonable analogy. Um, so the 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 <laughs> it's interesting. An ETF is a very specific thing, right? An ETF is you know. Uh, 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 an exchange traded um, fund, which is, you know, there's an underlying asset that is represented, the price of the ETF represents the price of the underlying traded asset. Um, so here with, with Bitcoin, right, and that analogy, you know, the analogy would be that, that the ETF is, is indeed Bitcoin with a little b, right, and that the underlying asset is the value created by Coinbase and you know and BitPay and all the other players in the ecosystem. Um, I think it's a it's a fair analogy. Um, I think it's a good way of thinking about it. Uh, one of the reasons I think it's a good way of thinking about it is that right. It's not, oh, nothing's perfect, right? But one of the reasons I think it's a good way of of thinking about it is that that as the ecosystem grows and as there are more participants and more users, more people involved, you know, more companies doing interesting things. Uh, indeed, right. The underlying value, and I'm, I use the word value specifically, um, not not price, right. The underlying value of of a Bitcoin increases, right. Uh, then the, the question of price versus value is another another story, right. So that which has value can be mispriced, right. So you can have an asset that's priced at a hundred dollars, and the, the true value of that asset might be a thousand dollars. The reason it's mispriced is because market participants don't realize what's going on. So, you know, it could be any number of reasons, right? If you're able to identify that mispricing, it's to your advantage to buy that asset. I think with Bitcoin, you, one could make the argument that that's exactly what's going on. Um, you're seeing a huge amount of growth in the ecosystem, a huge amount of growth in participants, 
a huge amount of growth in intellectual capital that's entering the ecosystem in terms of getting involved with new projects and you know building on pre-existing structures and adding you know adding new pieces of code there's a lot of a lot of stuff going on right so um one could make the argument that the fundamentals of bitcoin have improved tremendously from one year ago today right from you know late november of 2013 uh yet the price is down the price is down right so you know what's the logical conclusion right or you know maybe maybe that you know it's also possible that it was mispriced back then right and um yes the fundamentals have improved but it remains mispriced and it, and in spite of the fundamentals today it should be below where it is right now one of the problems with pricing bitcoin coming up with a price and there are various methodologies for it is that looking at the fundamentals is is not done in, in a way that that's the same sort of construct as we'd use for for something like stocks right for stocks there's a cash flow and you look at the cash flow and you say okay the fundamentals are this and it, you know, it's worth x right um this is a little bit more like a commodity right where you for valuation purposes where you look at the supply curve which we all know is some you know with pretty good precision right based on the algorithm we know what's going to you know of course there's some variability around the exact timing of the generation of a block but we have a pretty good sense of the of the supply curve right um what we don't know is the demand curve and that makes things very very difficult you know whereas with something like oil we know sort of what the supply curve looks like and we can hazard you know reasonable guesses as to what the demand curve looks like and we can disagree about that but we're going to come to some reasonable range good luck doing it with bitcoin <laughs> what what are some ways that one may try to predict what the what the demand curve would be what are some some indicators that would allow you to at least try to to make some predictions or is that even possible? I'm working on it. Let me get back to you. <laughs> but no, but is, is that is that something that 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 even makes sense to think about? Is that something that even makes sense to try to think of, or or is that? There are other ways. Look, there are other ways that you could. The other ways that you could determine that you could come to a determination. Come to a de determination as to what the value of the underlying value of Bitcoin is. Right. You could look at it. You know. You could look at look at. Bitcoin with a big B, the payment network, right? And say, you know, it's, you know, Bitcoin with a little B is is the money in the payment network, and it's the only money, right? Although you, there's you know stuff that people built on top of the protocol, but let's put that aside. Um, and say, you know, the velocity of money is this, and you, it's not not that difficult to do. Susan Athey at Stanford did, you know, presented some some good work on that, um, and actually a, a a buddy of mine here in New York. Uh, Karel Kovrov did some wrote a, wrote a good paper on it as well. And you could you could use that as a valuation framework for Bitcoin, and I, I you know I I'm not going to refute it, um, but that's a different framework entirely. And what I was you know referring to a moment ago was a supply curve versus a demand curve. And you know your question was can you can you construct a demand curve? Or is it even a you know a reasonable exercise? Um, it, and my answer is I'm working on it. You know I think that there are ways to think about it. And, and you know, come to reasonable conclusions. But I'm not there yet. I, I don't have an answer for you, unfortunately. Um, but I, I'll tell you this: Is it worth doing? I think it's. I think it, it's certainly an interesting thing to, to contemplate. And I wouldn't be contemplating it if I didn't think it was worth doing. Okay. Well, at least it's worth doing. All right. <laughs> right. I think it's worth, it's worth doing. I mean, you know, are we going to get it right? I don't know. Okay. Well, we'll we'll get back to that in just a second. Uh, before we do that, we'd like to tell you about. Uh, another new sponsor, our friends over at Shapeshift. Uh, Brian, have you ever tried buying altcoins? I have. And how was that experience for you? Yeah, it's pretty painful. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I mean, sometimes you want to buy altcoins uh, like Litecoin or Dogecoin or some of these new coins coming out like uh, Storage or Gems. And if you have, well, you've probably come to the same conclusion as us. Is it's, it's really painful. Uh, you have to find a reputable exchange and that's difficult because you know some some exchanges have recently fallen. Uh, we're finding out they're fraudulent. You have to create an account, and then you have to give them a bunch of personal information, and then you've got to deposit some Bitcoin, and then you've got to place the order, wait for that to be fulfilled. I mean, that could take hours. It could even sometimes take days. Not with Shapeshift. 
Shapeshift is the easiest way to buy altcoins. They support, get this. So uh, Litecoin, Peercoin, Darkcoin, Dogecoin, Namecoin, Feathercoin. I can't keep this off the top of my head. I, I've got to read it. And they're supporting, they're adding new coins all the time. So the best thing about Shapeshift is you don't even have to create an account. Uh, they don't need any personal information. They don't even want your email address. In fact, if you gave them your email address, I think they would be offended. And trading with Shapeshift stays just a few minutes, not hours. So let's just walk through how this works. It's super simple. You go to their website uh, and here you'll see some sort of a, it looks like a currency conversion tool. You've got uh, one currency on the side. So say Bitcoin and another currency, let's say you want Dogecoin on the other side. And then you just enter the amount of Dogecoin that you want, for, in for instance, and, and you press start. And you put your Dogecoin address. It could be yours. It could be a merchant. It could be somebody you want to tip. And then all you need to do is uh, they'll show you an amount of Bitcoin. You send that specific amount to an address they specify. And that's it. In just a few minutes, you'll have Dogecoin in your wallet. So Shapeshift is super fast. It's super easy. There's no accounts needed. No personal information is required. Your privacy is protected and you pay an upfront fee, an upfront uh, rate rather, that is announced when you initiate the trade. So head over to shapeshift.io at shapeshift, like a shapeshifter.io. Uh, give it a try. Tell us what you think. And uh, I, I, mean, I really think you'll love it. And we want to thank Shapeshift for their support of Epicenter Bitcoin. So Daniel, um, Moving forward uh, with regards to Bitcoin and Wall Street, I mean, we've seen uh, a lot of people attempt to try to bridge the gap between um, Bitcoin and Wall Street. Uh, you're certainly trying to do that. You know, there's been talk of the Bitcoin ETF and even from the regulatory side, uh, the bit license, you know, in incorporates some uh, some regulation that would try to protect investors in, in the future. Um, do you think that Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies becoming an accepted asset class amongst financial investors is something that's feasible? And if so, when will that take place? You, you know, how do you see that scenario playing out? It's absolutely feasible. Um, feasibility, for sure. Um, it's a loaded, you've asked a loaded question. <laughs> so, uh, right. Is it feasible? Yes. Um, but I think that that might not be the might not be the measurement I'd use. Um, is it feasible? Then you know maybe you ask, is it likely? <laughs> and you know, when will it happen? Um, it's it's definitely feasible. The likelihood of it will de will depend on a lot of, a lot of other factors, right? I think the likelihood of it will depend quite largely on what goes on in the Bitcoin ecosystem and whether or not there continues to be progress, as well as what goes on in the outside world, right? So. Um, if we continue to see more and more usage of Bitcoin, more transactions, more merchants accepting it, uh, more people saying, "Hey, I, you know, I want this thing," you know, uh, more accounts at Coinbase, right? More accounts at at uh, at um, at Bitstamp, you know, more, you know, you know, you know, more accounts at Bitfinex, you know, more people doing things, more people coding, you know. You know more GitHub repositories. You know more and more stuff, right? Uh, then it will become clearer on a fundamental basis that the value of this thing is increasing, and that will entice more institutional investors to get involved. Right? That will certainly raise the interest level. Um, now, another another scenario here that would be sort of less uh, less palatable, but it's entirely possible, is that you know you know. Bad things happen with you know, central banks, you know, globally. You know, pick your central bank, right? You know, you know some particular country, uh, and uh, as a consequence of bad things happening um, with that central bank, um, you can imagine that people choose to put their, you know, value into Bitcoin instead, right? Um, so it's sort of a, a, what I would call a negative catalyst. Versus all these positive catalysts of people getting more and more involved. Um, either set of catalysts would entice, would be, you know, would be create a greater incentive and um, interest on the part of in institutional investors to get involved. Now, uh, when will that happen? How will that happen? I don't know with precision. Um, there is, you know, there are two other barriers. One of which we're trying to deal with. I wouldn't say both of which we're trying to deal with. The first is 
I think that there is, although a familiarity of, with Bitcoin insofar as people have read the word. I mean, it's been on the cover of the Wall Street Journal, right? So the, the institutional investing universe, the folks have read the word Bitcoin. Some of them have a sense for what it is. There's still a lot of confusion as to how it works, what it means, what, you know. People still talk a lot about Mt. Gox. I keep hearing that all the time, right? Um, people haven't, and I don't mean this just about investors. I mean this about, you know, the general public. Haven't necessarily taken the time to understand it, and it's not the simplest of topics, right? You have to kind of sit down and, and think about it. And people tend not to sit down and think about money. <laughs> it's just not something people tend to think about, right? Money is the thing that that shows up in your checking account on payday, right? Um, you know, that's the first barrier. People have to really sit down and think about it. And there's a lot of stuff in this world to think about, and a lot of investment opportunities for investors to say, hey, you know, we should be thinking about this particular thing, right? So you have to have People saying, I'm going to go, go do the work and understand this thing. And then the second thing, you know, what we're trying to do is make it accessible, put it on the menu, right? And, you know, for, from a, and this gets to the heart of what we do here at SolidX. The institutional investing landscape consists of entities that are accustomed to you know, very specific parameters around you know, settlement, clearing, custody, all these things that are you know, heavily regulated, pretty well entrenched have incumbent players that, you know, have a reason for being there, right? And unfortunately, Bitcoin doesn't really fit into any of those, into into any of the buckets that the that the current system offers, right? So it's not as though, you know, you can buy it on the New York Stock Exchange and then have it clear through you know, a particular clearing agent and then have it custodied at a big custody bank. It just doesn't do that. It doesn't work that way, right? Now, could those entities come around and start to do that? It's certainly possible, right? I mean, I don't think that's happening in the near term, but it's possible that it could happen. Until that happens, you have a situation where Bitcoin isn't really on the menu, so to speak, in the way that stocks are or fixed income securities are. It's just not there, right? Uh, you can't put it into your order management system and say, hey, you know, I want to be, you know, long $10 million worth of Bitcoin. You just can't do it. So that's a situation where swaps come in and you use swaps as a mechanism to get that economic exposure in spite of the fact that the underlying asset doesn't fit into the buckets that have already exist in the current financial ecosystem. Let me put it like this. Do you think that uh, the demand will come from the investor side or do you think that the demand will be created by companies like yours trying to bridge the gap between the Bitcoin space and, and the, in, uh, the institutional investors. Do you think one day you know, all the investors are going to wake up and say, we need to buy Bitcoin and the, the, those, the, the ability for them to get into it uh, for, as an asset, uh, those facilities will not be there? Or do you think it's the other way around that you guys are creating that, that demand? So I certainly wouldn't give myself that much credit. <laughs> I would love to think that I'm creating the demand from, from thin air. But that's uh, it's pretty unlikely. Um, I think what we're what we're really doing is you know, providing a mechanism for people to get involved, and we are also providing information and, and education. We're not going around and evangelizing. You know, I'm not out there saying saying you should be long this thing or short this thing, and I'm, I'm not saying that. Um, we're providing information and and letting people make whatever decision they want to make. Um, there are plenty of people out there who are evangelizing, and I think they do a very good job of that. That's not my role. Um, my role is to provide information and access. So uh, it's a very different role in a very different context. Uh, I don't see myself as creating demand. So maybe finish your thought, but let me ask uh, my, my question first, and you know, you decide if you want to finish what you started. Sure, sure, so, go ahead. It seems to me that with Bitcoin, you have this sort of likely scenario that, uh, you know, let's say some people on Wall Street start thinking like there is something there, right? You just start going in, this drives up the price. And then other people are like, well, this must be true because the price is going up. And even if it's not true, I don't want to, you know, you don't want to be the last one, right? And it's this sort of, uh, I think it's just prone for bubbles uh, in, in that dynamic. And, and the interesting thing is if you compare it to, let's say, something like the dot-com bubble, where uh, you maybe had a similar dynamic where everybody wanted to go in, 
uh, and they had a fear of missing out, there was still something in the end tying it to sort of tying it to the floor, which was, are these companies actually going to generate the profits that justify those valuations? With Bitcoin, that's not really there, right? I mean, you can say to some extent, like its usage as a payment network, adoption, etc. To some extent, it can function like that, but to only to a limited extent. So I think that dynamic is, is really interesting. Uh, and I feel like that dynamic is going to be the thing that's just going to drive it like crazy. It hasn't happened yet. Um, do, you, do you see that too? Do you think that, that dynamic exists? And, and do you think that could be something that would drive, um, drive developments in the, in the future? People chasing asset prices because asset prices are rising is a phenomenon that we've seen throughout you know throughout the history of financial markets so it absolutely could happen here it sounds to me like that's what you're talking about and it happens all the time um so it certainly could happen here i wouldn't count on it happening here and i wouldn't i wouldn't uh you know i i i would prefer to look at it on a on a fundamental basis and say you know how is this thing being used how is bitcoin being used How's the Bitcoin ecosystem developing rather than looking at it on a, you know, fear of missing out basis or, you know, asset price increase, therefore people buy asset. I mean, I'd rather look at it on the fundamental basis. Um, but sure, it, it definitely could, what you're describing could happen. Um, I definitely won't make a prediction as to when or whether it will happen, but it, it could. Yeah, I mean, I think there's no way to predict that kind of thing. So we're coming towards the end, but there's one thing I, I want to touch on, which has been on my mind quite a bit. And I should give credit here uh, to Martin Kuppelmann, who is the CEO of Fairlay, who was our first advertiser, uh, or still our advertiser. So um, he gave a talk at the uh, meetup here in Berlin, which I run, um, about some issues of mining. And, and there's one thing he talked about, which I thought was extremely interesting and extremely worrying, um, which was that, let's say you start having a, a derivatives market, and that's a derivatives market where, you know, like you and I, we do a contract. We say, like, if Bitcoin price goes that way, I give you um, a certain amount. Like, let's say, I mean, with you, the difference is you're actually buying those Bitcoins, right? But what if you start having a derivative markets where neither party uh, buys the Bitcoins, but people... I rely on uh, the credit risk of the counterparty to actually come through uh, in a certain event. Now, if that happens and if the, if the derivative market takes on a size, maybe many times the size of the Bitcoin monetary base, and I think we've seen that happen sort of in derivatives markets uh, very often, then the thing that worries me is that you could take a really big short position in a derivatives market let's say you could maybe stand to make $10 billion if Bitcoin goes to zero. And then you could take some of that money you stand to make and attack Bitcoin on a technical level. So go, for example, bribe mining pools to stop uh, including transactions and in blocks, uh, do that kind of thing. So it, it seems to me that as soon as... Because right now, in my view at least, we are sort of relying on miners being uh, altruistic or at least sort of it being in their long-term interest to generate their money from mining Bitcoins and getting transaction fees. But if they get their revenues not from there, but from somewhere else, all bets are off what's going to happen. And I, that's something that really worries me. So I'm, I'm curious, do you, do you think that's a... A real risk? Is that something you've thought about or you've had someone hurt uh, talk about? I certainly have thought about that and um, I've thought about various permutations on it and uh, it's absolutely true that we are all uh, relying on miners to, to, to do their job for the network, right? We, we have a significant reliance on miners and there's, there are certainly concerns about the centralization of mining. It's not, it's not what I, I suspect Satoshi envisioned. Uh, and that's a concern. And what you described in terms of, you know, the derivatives market being larger than the underlying market, absolutely possible. 100%. Uh, the scenario that you described, it absolutely could happen. 
a couple of things that I I sort of think should should be thought about in this context. If you had a situation where you, the incentive structure of of miners were to change, or miners were somehow to be somehow you know threatened, or something something were to happen to mining such that transactions don't clear, something weird happens, right? Um, the question is this: How would the market react, right? What we saw in, in March of 2013, when when the blockchain forked, right? We saw the the traded price of Bitcoin decline, but it certainly didn't decline to zero, right? So there was a, a what I would call an underlying network event, not as severe as the one you're describing, but the trading, you know, the price of Bitcoin didn't go to zero. Um, what would we see today, right? Would we see the the price go to zero, right? Would we see exchanges saying we're halting trading, right? What what would happen, right? Would this be a situation where it's a, it's an irreparable problem, right? Um, I think there are a lot of parameters that are very difficult to predict. And I think anyone who would be engaged in the sort of activity that you're describing, and there certainly are entities that, that have enough capital to do it. Of course there are. Um, I think they would think carefully about what the consequences would be in terms of, you know, would they actually be able to cash out on their short position, right? If, if you had the sort of network disruption that you're describing, right, I'm not so sure that everyone would suddenly give up on Bitcoin. People might say to themselves, hey, you know, we've discovered a problem. We've kind of known that this was a problem for a long time, right? We've known that we have a reliance on mining. Uh, we've, we've known that, you know, for, for quite a while. Uh, and here we are, things are coming to, coming to a head. Um, now, to the extent that that event precipitated a change, right? Now we're being very abstract, right? But you can come up with concrete scenarios. Precipitated a change. Right in in the proof of work, so, you know something were to change. Right, you can imagine that Bitcoin would actually emerge stronger, right, just as it did, right, you know, post the collapse of Gox. Right, you know what happened? Bitcoin went down, 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 down. Gox collapsed, right, and then it went up, <laughs> right. Yeah, this is the Andreas Antonopoulos scenario where he says, you know, we'll have uh, Bitcoin one crashes and then Bitcoin two will emerge and be stronger. Right. Now, of course, you know, derivatives contracts can be written different ways and it gets, it gets really hairy. What I, so what I would say is, on a simplified basis, right, what you're describing is certainly plausible, right? But I think that there's a litany of things that are plausible in terms of disrupt, you know, disruptive problems for Bitcoin and a litany of ways in which those problems could potentially be resolved. And I think the number of permutations involved here makes it very, very difficult to predict what will happen. I used to be deeply concerned about mining, um, really, really concerned about it. It's still on my mind, right? But I, I can conceive of various scenarios where things get resolved, you know, but I'm still worried about it. So, so, so look, I mean, it's, it's, I, I'm trying to be measured here, right? Does that, does that make sense as an answer? Yeah, no, it does make sense. Um, I'll add one last thing. It is entirely possible that the specific scenario that you've described could happen. So I would, I would assign a non-zero probability to that. That is not a zero, right? There is some probability of that, right? But I think that, the, that there are probabilities all around the chart. There you go. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's a, it's a scenario that's pretty far off because there is no such derivatives market. Uh, it, it, Bitcoin would actually have to get to a, a, a significant size, so it will have to be as... I'm sure there are many things in the meantime that could go wrong as well, and, and maybe they're more likely and more dangerous and more uh, imminent. It's just It seems like that will be something very difficult to defend because it's like outside. I mean, to some extent, right? I mean, of course, if you say Bitcoin itself is is not vulnerable, right? If you can deal with those... Uh, if you can prevent attacks on Bitcoin itself, then, you know, perhaps. But yeah, I, I, it's it's one thing of many things that I think has to be on our minds. And uh, it's certainly not the only thing. I mean, the, the mining centralization is another one. Did, you got to wonder if, if Satoshi uh, thought about mining centralization when, when he wrote the white paper. I don't know if, 
I don't know if he envisioned a world where uh, where uh, large mining uh, pools and and uh, and large mining companies had so much power. So, uh, just coming back to the Solid X, um, can you talk about about the company? What is the what does it look like, and the and your team? Sure, uh, I have a, a terrific team. Actually, I, I'm very fortunate to have such a great team. So it's folks who are largely from the institutional investing universe uh, or the the legal side of institutional investing, and also Bitcoiners and uh, people who are who are simultaneously both. Right. So we have, you know, our our head trader used to work at a very big hedge fund. He's also a Bitcoiner. Um, our chief operating officer used to work in the foreign exchange markets and he was, you know, he had a C-suite position and he's a Bitcoiner, <laughs> right? So I have this team that has this, you know, fortunate mix of skills, right? That both institutional and they're also Bitcoiners. So uh, in that sense, I'm, I'm truly blessed. Um, you know, we also have some others on the team who are purely institutional, right? And we have others in the team who are really purely technical, but we have this great crossover point. And I, I'm very fortunate to have that. Um, you know, what, what does the company look like? You know, we're, we're a bunch of folks in a, in a, an office building in Manhattan. Um, it's, it's not, no, but I mean, how, how many, how many people on your team? So there are seven of us. Uh, and it looks like okay. there may be some others joining us soon. Um, and, uh, it's a little bit on the older side for, for, for Bitcoin. Uh, you know, the youngest member of our team is 29, uh, and the oldest member of our team is in his 50s. Um, and most of the team members are, are, are north of 35. That, 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 that's gotta be, that's gotta be in the, in the upper limits for the Bitcoin ecosystem. Or at least the startup ecosystem. Right. So, the, right, I was gonna say, yeah. Right, Third, the, most of the team members are, north, are are older than thirty-five. So, wow. And so, recently, you uh, received a fun, round of funding. Um, can you talk about that round of funding? Where um, your investors, uh, traditional VCs, or is it Wall Street? Combination money? of both. Um, we were very fortunate to have. Uh, uh, we are very fortunate to have great investors, and it is it is in a com- it is indeed a combination of VCs and uh, folks who have more Wall Street experience. Um, the round was led by Liberty City Ventures, and uh, had had the participation of of uh, uh, a syndicate of other VC groups, and also some folks from Wall Street as well. So uh, the capital comes from both sources, and uh, these are these are people who have a, a a strong understanding of what the potential is, you know, for Bitcoin to, to become. Um, both the VC side and the and the uh, Wall Street side, so uh, you know we're we're very fortunate to have that as well. And so, what are your plans for the next twelve months, broadly speaking? Sure. So, uh, as I said, you know we, we are up and running, which is great. But that doesn't you know that doesn't mean our work is done. We have a lot more to do. Um, we want to broaden our outreach significantly. Um, we want to make sure that the, the institutional landscape is more aware of Bitcoin and how they can get involved. Um, there are other products that we're, that are, you know, that we're considering in the, you know, in the blockchain ecosystem. There's a lot of stuff happening, um, you know, not just, not just in terms of altcoins, but in terms of, you know, app coins, so to speak. And you can, you know, the great thing about swaps is that you can, you can match cash flows for cash flows. So if you were to make, you know, a blockchain-based interest rate swap, and you can conceive of that happening, right? Um, you could match that with a, you know, ISDA-form swap, right? And again, we would we would function as the the mechanism that that connects the two things. So, I think there are going to be there's certainly the potential for, and we're already seeing a, you know, a nascent market for blockchain-based financial assets, and as that you know if that matures and as that matures we are positioning ourselves to get more involved with that and we're very excited about that as well cool so where can people find you people can find us at uh, www.sldx.com right now the the web page is uh, fairly bare uh 
fairly, not, it's not blank, but there's not much on it. And the reason is that we're, we're not, you know, we're not really retail facing. So it's, you know, not really meant for, uh, uh, you know, people who, not, it's more meant for institutions and less so for, for, uh, retail. Right. right that's right. Um, you know, which is not to say that, that, that we are, are not engaged with the Bitcoin ecosystem. On the contrary, we are very, very engaged with the New York, uh, Bitcoin circuit and also the Bitcoin circuit outside New York. Um, but right now, because our, our products are regulated in a particular way, we are purely institutional. Uh, maybe that changes someday, but, uh, not today. Cool. Well, uh, Daniel, thanks so much for joining us today. That was really interesting talking to you and uh, it's really interesting to hear what you guys are doing. Uh, and I think it will be, it will be great to see, I think, how things evolve, first of all, in that sort of space in general, like how Bitcoin will be used, adopted in the financial world. And it will be interesting to see uh, how your role and the role of SolidX evolves in, in that context. So thanks so much for joining us today and, and for sharing uh, your experiences with that. My pleasure. Thank you for uh, taking the time. It was an interesting discussion. Um, yeah, and uh, to our listeners, thanks very much for listening or watching uh, the show. Uh, if you wanna, if you wanna follow us on Twitter at EpicenterBTC, uh, we let you know about the next show. Uh, also, you can follow us on Google Plus uh, on our Hangouts or announced there, so it makes it particularly easy to see uh, when it's coming up. And uh, finally, if you like the show, please leave us an iTunes review. That uh, helps very much new people uh, find the show. Thanks so much, and we'll be back uh, next week.